course again, every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin and this is Berkeley Crocs. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Paul Dixon, who'll be discussing his book, Sputnik, The Shock of the Century. Also, we'll find out why your voice sounds different in your head. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Crocs. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. I entered the Matrix. You entered the Matrix. Did, did you, you do that too? I I did. And did you free your mind? It's almost there, but I think I gotta wait five more months though, or six more months. <laughs> it's a gestation period for yeah. freeing your mind. <laughs> so what do you think about it? You, you cannot know the Matrix. You must see it for yourself. You must. Yeah, no, it was it was a good film, but I I thought perhaps the story is not as good as the uh, the first one. Really, I I still liked it just as much. I mean, it was very different, but I think it really uh, developed this whole idea of Zen and what the one. I I suppose so. In the first one, you know, you had fight scenes which were part of the story. They sort of developed the story. Here was like a fight scene just for the sake of a fight scene in a way. Ah, I guess so. But why not? I guess if you have a couple. Mega million dollar uh, budget to deal with. Two hundred million, I heard. Yeah, you can do whatever the <laughs> in heck you want. Yeah. All but right. What's happening in real science? Oh, real science. Outside the Matrix. Matrix. Or well, in the Matrix. Well, here in the Matrix, we're having to deal with a big surprise. A big surprise that we are slaves to our mind. <laughs> Well, we're gonna, at least going to be slaves to La Nina. La Nina? Is that the counterpart to El Nino? It is indeed the counterpart to El Nino. It's, and uh, what it's turning out is that we will be looking at a La Nina uh, summer here. Uh, but the big surprise was that meteorologists were unable to predict the appearance of La Nina. You mean the recent one or the, just the in general? This upcoming one. I see. And it's quite a surprise to them because they've been very good at predicting the past El Ninos and La Ninas. Mm-hmm. But this one has caught them completely by surprise. And it's only uh, been recent weeks that they've really been uh, able to see now in the computer simulations that there's going to be a La Nina. So this new uh, development, are they going to have to refine their models? or Probably they're going to have to either look at their models or see what they missed in the uh, previous collections of data because they haven't mm-hmm. been able to figure out what's going on yet as far as why they missed it. But as far as it goes for us, it basically just means that La Nina is going to spur some hurricanes in the tropical Atlantic. India is going to be less likely to suffer a failure of its critical summer monsoon season. And, of course, the African Sahel, which usually suffers decades-long drought, could be wetter than average. And Alaska, as well, will get back to normal in terms of its winter 
years. Cool. One year they actually had to cancel the Iditarod one or two years ago. They had yeah, to push, I heard about or that. push it up further because there wasn't enough snow. Not enough snow? Yeah. <laughs> La Nina's coming up. Only, uh, wow, it's like the movies, huh? Big blockbuster. <laughs> the, it's going to cost, what, three or four billion dollars of damage? That's right. La Nina reloaded. <laughs> this can be found in the recent edition of Science. <laughs> So finally, something that may free your mind, or at least discover how to free your mind. I, I need all the help I can get in that respect. So, are you an angry kid? I'm the worst there is. I'm pissed off at you right now, Frank. Oh, man. Well, I'm going I'm to free your mind from your skull. How about that? <laughs> but you know what this means, right? Uh, you could have increased chance of heart disease. Oh, no. Yes. A recent study carried on, hostile kids tend to have about three times more risk of cardiovascular diseases later in life than uh, serene kids. Oh, so if you're calm and uh, zen-like, you could live longer. Yeah, wow. basically. But what they found is they took kids, they scored them to a standard test of hostility, they read them something, and then when they cut them off, see what their reaction was. And then they tested them three years later, and then they also tested their blood samples. So what they found is different levels of insulin, obesity, high blood pressure, etc. And what they found is if you correlate this to later in life, you'd also get heart disease and diabetes. So the, the thing is just chill out. And yeah. Be cool. If you want to live long, just chill out. And it helps with your obesity, apparently. And I thought it was just uh, regular dieting and exercise. Right. One speculation to have is that, you know, when you have an anger response to whatever stimulus, cortisol hormone is released. And they believe that this could be one of the mechanisms that's leading to these less than healthy lives. Right. I think that's sort of a general mechanism that's found throughout the body. Right. And uh, this was a study carried out at the University of South Florida by uh, Kristen Solomon on like 134 kids. They plan to do a lot more since this is just a small study right now. Okay. So where is this uh, published? The Health Psychology, Volume 22 page 279, or the summary in the recent edition of New Scientist. Alright, so are you afraid of the attack of the killer clumps? The killer clumps? No, just those Agent Smiths. It's apparently turned into the uh, Matrix uh, fan episode here. but Yeah. Um, no, so the killer clumps. So it, it turns out that Lou Gehrig's disease is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Right. So. Isn't that where your uh, your nerve sheaths break down in your spine? Right. It's basically the, it's a hardening of uh, decay of motor neurons in the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Big question is what's going on in terms of what's causing ALS? Was it bacteria or viruses? What they're turning out to find is that it's a mutation in superoxide dismutase. An this enzyme. Is, this is a particular enzyme that breaks down superoxide, which is a, a toxic product in cells. Right. It's been a long time mystery. Why is this mutation actually correlated with Lou Gehrig's disease? Because we have a defective enzyme, it's possibly the reason why we're having this disease. That's the, the idea. There's a defective enzyme, but what's the nature of the mutation that's actually causing the disease? Recent researchers, uh, led by John Hart at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, looked at the structure of the mutated enzyme, mm -hmm. compared it with the regular enzyme, right. and they found a specific pocket that's formed in the mutated enzyme that allows groups of these enzymes to clump together. They, really? So they form these big fibrillary strings. Okay, so that renders them inactive, basically. Right, it renders them inactive, and probably they think it's also doing something as in Alzheimer's disease with the uh, beta amyloid type thing, mm -hmm. just these big stringy proteins start clogging up the cells yeah. and overwhelming the uh, cell's breakdown machinery. Mm -hmm. So they think this might be happening in the motor neurons, and that's probably what's killing them off. Things. So it's a, a big target for drug manufacturers in terms right, of... Right, because it could be like gene therapy if you can correct the right, enzyme. Right, Maybe a small molecule that can uh, stop the binding. So if you want to take a look at this, this is in the recent issue of Nature Structural Biology.
Okay, so what kind of spam do you get in your email? I, I get all kinds of spam in my email, mostly、uh, mortgages, mortgages, and that XXX stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is. Well, I, I don't really consider that spam. Oh, really? But actually, a reader from the、uh, Chemical Engineering News has noted that he's been getting emails for nitrogen-free Viagra. Nitrogen-free Viagra. Okay. Yeah, and、uh, if you ask the chemist at Pfizer, they would tell you that impossible. Right. Be, uh... Right. If you look at the formulas, like C22, H30, N6, O4,、uh-huh. so you need at least six nitrogen. Each of these molecules,、uh-huh. so they're just a little bit distraught that there's products out there that claim to be a nitrogen-free Viagra. Well, it's no sillier than a fly-by-night、uh, remedies that we get. Then we then we get like the the female version of Viagra.、Here. Oh, that's right. What was it called? Avlomil. 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 And if you look on the package, it's just herbal remedy type things. <laughs> so you think you're gonna name your first kid Avlomil or Viagra? <laughs> Hopefully, it won't come to that, but we'll we'll see. So if, if people want to read about nitrogen-free Viagra,、uh, so this commentary was in the、uh, the March 24. Fourth issue of Chemical and Engineering News, and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Mr. Paul Dixon will join us to discuss his book Sputnik: The Shock of the Century. So stay tuned. A winter's day in a deep and dark December. From my window to the streets below, on a freshly fallen, silent shroud of snow, I am a rock. I am an island. I build walls, a fortress deep and mighty. No need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk of love. Of feelings that I've died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, on October 4th, 1957, Americans looked up at the sky and saw the future. The Soviets had beaten the United States into space. The Soviet Union launched the first main object into space, a 184-pound satellite carrying only a radio transmitter. And while Sputnik was a shock scientifically and would profoundly impact the study of space, this scientific endeavor would also result in political ramifications for both sides of the Cold War. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks to discuss the advent of Sputnik is Mr. Paul Dixon. Mr. Dixon is the author of Sputnik: The Shock of the Century, where he uses recently declassified documents to offer a strikingly revised picture of the race into space. Mr. Dixon, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. You're most welcome.、Uh, well, you've written a very fascinating book,、uh, Sputnik: The Shock of the Century, where you talk a lot about the history of Sputnik. I'm just curious if you could mention、uh, some of the significance for those of us who weren't around at the time. The significance of Sputnik had at its time and the ramifications that it's had since then. 
Well, I think what happened at the time was that the United States really couldn't comprehend that the Soviet Union had any technological ability and any advantage over us in any way, shape, or form. We were afraid of them, but we were afraid of their sort of brute power. And we felt that almost anything they had, they must have, by by its own nature, stolen from us with spies or something, with nuclear technology, etc. So this, the shock of this thing, when it goes up, and the United States is planning to go up itself, and we're reading in all the magazines and newspapers that the United States will be the first into space in a matter of months. And in the middle of all this, with very little knowledge on, on the part of the Americans, the Russians put this thing up, and it's, it's fairly large. You know, it's about 70 times times what our first satellite will weigh and it you know the, the first one they hear 184 pounds they think that a decimal point has been moved you know the scientists said oh no no it's 1.84 pounds it was larger it could be seen you could actually see it go overhead or at least the trailing booster rocket and it could be heard the little beep was heard on every ham radio and of course passed along to radio and television at that time. So it was with us for, for weeks and weeks. We would hear the beeping, and it, it scared us, because the other thing was it showed us that the Russians had the ability, if they had the ability to put a satellite that would cross the Mississippi River time and again, and you know many times a day, that it also meant that they could send a nuclear warhead across the Mississippi and, and into you know Omaha or Chicago or wherever they wanted to send it. So there was this unbelievable fear that this showed that they had really been a leap ahead of us in terms of the ability to send missiles. It basically created a whole a whole new array of technology. There was a huge push at that point for more military technology, but by the same token, it forced American science and engineering into new areas because we had become very self-satisfied and smug as a country, and so the rest of the world was saying, well, all the Americans, they were inventing huge tail fins for cars and, mm-hmm. you know, Princess phones, which are really standard telephones, but they were pastel. I mean, there was a, there was a sort of a mocking look at the way we were doing things at that time, that we weren't, we were just building creature comforts, that all we really cared about were color televisions and such. So there was a huge push to get us into higher levels of science and technology and to actually improve education. Uh, what were some of the uh, results of that? Well, I mean, there was, just on the very basic level, mathematics started to be pushed. Uh, education for women was really pushed, especially in the sciences, for the first time ever. And when Sputnik went up the first time, the reporters went over to Russia. They saw that the Soviets were putting vast numbers of women through medical school and through engineering school. And that really sort of came back and hit us in the face because we were educating almost no women in those areas. So there was a big push for that. The things like Latin and Greek, Things that were seemed to be less than germane dropped immediately from curriculums at high school, at least at the high school level. And there was this huge emphasis on modern language, Chinese and Russian, and huge emphasis on language labs, you know, much more practical kinds of education. It just hit everywhere. And, the, and for the just the average American kid, it was just a lot more homework. <laughs> you know, people are saying the Russian child got four hours of homework, and our kids were getting none, so there was a huge push on homework at that point. Mm. Uh, well, it's interesting, a lot of the um, history behind the development of Sputnik, uh, you, you go into it in great detail. You can explain maybe about some of the key figures that were involved in the development of Sputnik and the U.S.-led space program as well. Some of the key figures in, in getting the, the Sputnik up were Russians who we had no knowledge existence. They're a big Russian pioneer. We just couldn't comprehend. There was a deaf school teacher in a remote village named Tsiolkovsky who turned out to be the guy who came up with a lot of the basic ideas of space travel and of using tiles to heat shields and, and using some of the ideas that actually appear in the, in the space shuttle and other American things were actually he first came up with. But another one was uh, Korolev, who was the genius, the guy who actually built Sputnik. 
and he was a secret. We didn't know who he was until after his death, uh, or about the time of his death. And he was the genius. And you know, the other thing was that Stalin had sent so many of the Russian space scientists to the Gulag and some to their death that it was it was extraordinary that they weren't much more advanced even than they seemed to be. And on our side, we had some brilliant people. We had Werner von Braun, who we had actually taken, who had been a Nazi, but who had we'd taken as as sort of a spoil of war. And he was directing our space program, and he was very eager to go up. And we had our own homegrown people. Goddard, the famous space scientist, was sort of relegated to the margins in America at that time because people weren't thinking in those terms. And what are some of the factors that led to the Soviets making the push into space first? There were a number of factors. One was that they wanted, there was a propaganda value. They could leap very much ahead of the United States. And the United States at that time was mired in the civil rights struggle in, in Little Rock. Uh, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower had sent troops into Little Rock to, to make sure kids could go to school. So the Russians, to some degree, saw this as a political thing. The other thing was they, they were moving fast. And, and we could have beaten them, but we wanted to make our program totally civilian. Theirs was tied to the military. We wanted to make ours totally civilian if we could. And we were also, Eisenhower in the back of his mind wanted to have a, an excuse to, to basically build reconnaissance satellites. Eisenhower believed that we could win the Cold War if we knew more, had more information. We could prevent a hot war. So he was always of the opinion that, that if we could put a satellite up with a, with a camera in it, we knew where all the Russian satellites or all, all the Russian missiles were, we'd, we'd be at an advantage. I see, and do mention that uh, President Eisenhower was indeed secretly pleased that the Russians had launched. Yeah, because he believed in. You see, he went he went to Geneva nine, two years ahead of this. Stalin was dead, and the new guys uh, Khrushchev and Bulganin were in charge of the Soviet Union. And Eisenhower wanted something called open skies. Eisenhower was. Even though he was a military man, his great, great, great desire was to prevent war. And he went to the Russians and said, look, fellas, you know, the, the, the top guys, let's set it up so that we can spy on each other. So if we, we both know what each other's doing, he called it open skies. If we both know what the other one's doing, then in fact there'll be no secrets and we'll, nobody will have the advantage over the other country. And well, no one will be able to you know, have a first strike in a war because we'll, knowledge will be more important than, than that. And, and, of course, the Russians didn't want to do it. They said absolutely not. They didn't want to have open skies. So Eisenhower really was thinking about the satellite. He said, if, well, if they went first, if they crossed our country again and again and again and we didn't protest, that meant by fiat that we could cross their country again and again and again. The only difference being that ours would be gathering intelligence, and theirs was, at that point, wasn't uh, gathering intelligence. So it was, it was a fairly noble concept because it, it really did go to the issue of the, the, his greatest, greatest, greatest fear was war, especially nuclear war. So, so do you think it was then better for the U.S. that the Russians had made it first? Yeah, I think it forced us, I think it forced us to do a lot of things that we weren't going to do at that point. I think it forced us to really pay attention to education. I think it forced us really, it, it put us almost a generation ahead in technology. I mean, when we first got up, it really forced us into solid state electronics much faster than we would have. It forced us into miniaturization. It forced us into the idea of computers communicating. I mean, Sputnik was directly responsible for the ARPANET, which is the first major, which is a defense department um, network of computers linked to Berkeley, among other places. And that was the basis. That was the whole basis for the Internet. So it, it forced us to do certain things, which we would have done eventually, but we did, we did faster than we would have if Sputnik hadn't occurred.
Yeah. Well, we are running a little bit out of time. I'm just curious, uh, how did you become interested in, in this topic? Well, I was on. I was a. I was a kid, and I was a, a freshman in college, and I. I actually saw it go over. I was standing on a football field, and I actually saw it go over in the in the night sky, and I actually saw it. And I heard it on the radio, and I. I wasn't as horrified as a lot of other people were, but I. It sort of occurred to me in the, in the days after it went up that it, that it was basically going to change my life because of what it meant. And I, so I've always been fascinated with it. And, and, and the idea that you could see it, it was sort of like being able to see the Battle of Hastings, you know, mm-hmm. or some major you know, event, because you, know, you actually could see this thing in the sky, and that object really represented the beginning of the space age. Mm-hmm. In, indeed, indeed. Well, uh, Mr. Dixon, we are unfortunately out of time, but uh, I just want to thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. You're most welcome. I really enjoyed it. You were just listening to Mr. Paul Dixon discussing his book, Sputnik, The Shock of the Century. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what is that voice inside your head. So stay tuned. Gonna get back to be I'll start it up again I'm falling from the ceiling I'm falling from the sky Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why your voice sounds different inside your own head? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why your voice sounds different to you than it does to others? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. If we're talking about voices, we're talking about sound waves. Let's jump aboard one right now. Now, the sound waves that make up my hello began down in my larynx and vocal cords, traveled up through my mouth, and then many of them escaped into the air. Notice there's nothing in the air to block the path of our sound wave, which seems to be traveling right toward the ear of that gentleman over there. We just struck his eardrum, and now we're passing several other tiny organs that intensify the vibrations until our wave finally reaches the inner ear and is converted into a signal that the brain recognizes as... Hello. Now, let's start again. Notice that some sound waves remain inside my mouth, 
And these waves have to make their way through my skull, then through all the tissues, fluids, nasal passages, and membranes to finally reach my inner ear from the inside. Hello. As you can see, all this body tissue flattens the sound waves and creates a much different sounding hello. Goodbye. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Wow, don't you ever hear an echo after she speaks? You know, the only voice inside my head is her voice.、Mm-hmm. I hear when I go to sleep, and I hear when I wake up in the morning.、Uh, and now he has a Tokyo cube with、uh, the answer to last week's question of the week: What is the matrix? But if you're not into the matrix, you may know what it is as a mathematician. A matrix is a representation of、uh, different arrays of number, and it helps to solve problems in discrete mathematics very quickly and very efficiently. And that is what a matrix is. Ah,、uh, that's very interesting, Mr. Tokyo Kid. Hey, but if you're not in the Matrix, you might be wondering why is it you see all the colors around you? Hey, what is it that gives paint its color? Is that not really great? Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Emails here at crooksandhotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might add some color in your life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks@hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling, and I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>